Most of us are aware that SSL and security are becoming increasingly important around the web. Now, WordPress may be pushing this even further with the announcement that come 2017, they will only recommend hosting companies that offer SSL-secured websites by default, something that could have a pretty big impact on the way hosting is offered. Plus, if blog or web comments are a big part of your platform, you may be interested in a recent study released by Nate Silver's 538, which dives into the minds of internet commenters and why they do what they do. Also today we'll talk about Bob Ross, yes, the late painter and host of The Joy of Painting, and what he can teach us about building a personal brand. All this and more on The Rightly Designed Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. And you can call 888-727-1496. That's 888-727-1496 if you would like to ask a question for the program. So lots to get to today. The first of which is about WordPress, interestingly enough, and the fact that they're only going to be recommending hosting companies which offer SSL by default in 2017. So if you're not already familiar with it, with what SSL is, SSL is what provides websites security in essence, or a secure connection. So in brief, what an SSL certificate does, which is what provides SSL, is something that is actually installed on the host or on the server, you know, of the, the server that's actually hosting a website. And what that does is it enables somebody who is visiting, so the end user, somebody visiting a website, it it enables them to connect to the website uh, in an encrypted and completely secure uh, fashion. So this is pretty much standard practice, especially for people who are going to be accepting anything sensitive, any type of sensitive information. So like a social security number or, you know, something of that sort or payment, which is probably the most common. So you'll notice a site uh, is secured with an SSL certificate if it says HTTPS in the address bar. And typically most browsers will show like a lock, you know, like a green lock or something to signify the fact that you are in fact connected via a secure connection. Well, the big story here is that WordPress supposedly is going to be in 2017 only offering uh, or only recommending hosting companies that provide SSL by default. And this actually isn't that common with a lot of different WordPress hosting companies. They don't typically offer it for free by default. Now there's, you know, something I'm going to get into and, you know, with this article in particular, you can use something called Let's Encrypt, which is, you know, a free option for installing an SSL certificate and being able to offer encryption on your website. But there's also other things as well. I mean, like, uh, Cloudflare is a free service that enables you to do some level of encryption with your website. But most sites or most hosting companies allow you to encrypt your site by paying for an SSL certificate. That's what most of these do. I think that's what GoDaddy does. And a lot of these other hosting companies just enable you to do that by just paying them for an extra service to install it on your server. 
But what this article is talking about is that they want all hosts, the at, at least the ones that they're going to recommend, they want these companies to actually provide you know, SSL by default. And the whole idea here is, and again, we'll get, get to the article here shortly, but the whole idea here is to ensure that, you know, as much of the web is secure as possible. So I'll just jump into it. It's actually an article from WordPress Tavern. And it says, in October, Let's Encrypt was managing more than 10 million active SSL certificates. That number doubled to 20 million in November as large providers continue to partner with the organization to manage their customers' certificates. In 2014, Google announced that HTTPS is now a ranking factor. Earlier this year, the Google Chrome security team announced that Chrome 56 will mark HTTP sites that transmit passwords or credit cards as insecure. So in this article, they actually show a little bit of a screenshot so you can get an idea of what that's going to look like. So by default right now, if you try to type in like a password or something, it doesn't really do anything. Nothing special happens, but what it shows here in this image, which you can't, obviously can't, you know, it's tough to describe over audio. But in essence, it adds the words not secure to the side of the f the actual password field as you're type as you're typing it out, so very similar to the concept where if you've ever experienced going to a website that you know is trying to deliver you over HTTPS but doesn't have a valid certificate, a lot of time what Chrome or Firefox or Safari or these different browsers will do will give you a big old warning, and they'll say that this site is not secure. So that's actually been happening for a long time, and which is understandable because a lot of that would be, you know, a pretty big red flag that somebody's trying to actually, you know, scam you or something like that. But this is actually another step beyond that. This is even if it's a legitimate website, if it's asking for any type of remotely sensitive information, even something as, you know, like a password without an SSL certificate installed. Uh, that means that they're going to start, you know, throwing red flags out there as well, or adding these little not secure labels next to form fields for passwords and things like that. So it goes on and it says in 2017, managed, uh, managed WordPress hosting companies will have one more reason to enable SSL by default for new accounts. In a post on the WordPress.org blog, Matt Woolen, uh, Mullenweg, co-founder of Open Source WordPress Project, explains what the project is going to do to encourage HTTPS by default across the web. In early 2017, we will only promote hosting partners that provide a SSL certificate by default in their accounts. Later, we will begin to assess which features, such as API authentication, would benefit the most from SSL and will make uh, and make them only enabled when SSL is there. These moves are a continued effort by Mullenweg to secure and encrypt as much of the web as possible. Earlier this year, WordPress.com encrypted all of its sites using Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt is an initiative which aims to encrypt 100% of the web by making trusted certificates available to everyone at no cost. It's a 501c3 nonprofit and recently launched a crowdfunding campaign to cover the cost of one month of operations, totaling $200,000. So... All that to mention, you know, all that to, to bring to it, uh, you know, to light the, the importance of an SSL certificate. So I think it was uh, in the previous episode, I touched on the fact that WordPress is almost up to 30% market share. So for, uh, you know, that platform to begin pushing everyone towards SSL certificates can actually have a pretty big impact. Why this is going to be important, though, if you don't currently have an SSL certificate, you need to be aware of the fact that 
Coming very shortly, specifically with Chrome, people might start getting warnings if you ask for any type of sensitive information. So that's going to be things like, as I mentioned before, passwords uh, specifically, or especially if you do payment information. If you do payment information, uh, definitely should have an SSL certificate. But even if you don't accept payment information or anything like that, it's going to be a good idea to consider that, uh, consider an SSL certificate moving forward. If for no other reason than because of the fact that even search engines like Google and a lot of these different places are actually starting to favor sites that are secured with an SSL certificate. So you have everything kind of moving that direction. So even if you don't have an online shop, it may be a good idea to check with your hosting provider and see if that, uh, you know, an SSL certificate is something that they can help you install on your site. Uh, it's going to uh, it looks like the way things are moving right now, it's not going to be too long until it's going to be pretty much mandatory. So it's a good idea. Uh, if nothing else, it provides just that extra added layer of security for your customers or you know for people visiting your site, especially if they're providing you any information. So another interesting thing that came out as well in terms of the web was actually done on a study. Uh, it was it was put out. Uh, it was a study done by 538. If you're not familiar with 538, it's a site by Nate Silver, and they do tons of different statistics. And you know, their big thing, of course, is elections and polling and all that sort of thing. But they do a lot of other interesting stats as well. And so they did a pretty interesting study on internet commenters and why they do what they do. So this is kind of important or something to keep in mind if commenters are a big part of your platform. They seem to be tapering off a bit in terms of blogs and a lot of businesses and you know even personal blogs and things like that. They're still huge in the realm of YouTube and still pretty massive on a lot of news websites have comments uh, you know comment sections with their, which are over you know which are exploding with new you know massive amounts of comments every single article. But if commenting is a big part of your community, this might actually be interesting to know. So their article goes on and it says, why comment? The first thing I wanted to know was, why comment? What exactly are commenters seeking? A, surveys, uh, a survey like ours isn't perfect since it's inevitably biased towards a subset of people most inclined to answer an internet survey. And of course, self-reported results are notoriously unreliable. But it does provide a peek into people's motivation. Our survey takers gave a wide range of answers, and my college, Leia Labresco, randomly sampled 500 of them and sorted them into categories describing their motivations. So here's where it gets a little bit interesting. And so they kind of break down, first of all, who's taking their survey? What type of internet commenters, you know, are we actually surveying here? And so for people who are under 20 years old, it was right at 5%, people who are 20 to 29 years old, 29%, people who are 30 to 39, 28%, people who are 40 to 49, 14%, age 50 to 59, 12%, age 60 to 69, 9%, and 70 to 100 years old was at 2%. So they kind of broke that down in terms of, you know, the actual age range of people that they decided to go through and participate, you know, the people who decided to participate in this particular study. And uh, of those people that they decided to actually poll, uh, they were able to get as well the comment frequency. So how often do people, you know, who participate in commenting, uh, you know, in, in commenting on different sites, how often do they do it? So according to this study, and at least of the people that they sampled, 
people who comment daily that 24%, weekly at 17%, every few weeks, 10%, monthly, 4%, every few months, 15%, once a year or less, 16%, never 15%. So an interesting thing to take away from there is that I don't actually have the numbers here before me, but that number has dramatically decreased. So you may notice this, and it depends on the industry especially. I mentioned news uh, as a specific example, hasn't really decreased that much. If you go to a lot of news websites, you'll still notice tons of comments. Uh, same thing with things like YouTube, you know, which is essentially social media in its own regard. But a lot of individual bloggers, and you know, I've even noticed it in some of the design you know, sites I visit pretty regularly, that there's just been a massive drop-off in the amount of people who comment on those blogs. I think part of it has to do with we just have way more blogs, and this is just my theory, don't really have a lot of stats to kind of back this up, at least not at the moment. My theory has always been that you just, we have so many new blogs and new sites coming out every single day that you just, everything is spread so thin and there's so many places to comment and there's so many social media networks that you just kind of see commenting tapering off. But it still does exist. It's still a big part of many people's communities and still important to keep in mind. So here's even more, the part that I found even a little bit more interesting. And again, if commenters are a part of your community and of your platform, this may be good to know. So the question was, what are you trying to accomplish by commenting? And so at the top of the list of what people answered was at 19% was to correct an error. Uh, number two, you know, at 18% add to the discussion 10% was to give my personal perspective. 10% represent my my uh, my view. 8% be funny. The next was praise peace or commenters. Uh, number seven was ask a question or learn. Number six or 6% 6 would be persuade others. 4% give my ego a boost. And then it kept going down from there. The, pretty much anything from here down is going to be at 4% or below, and that's take part uh, in or interact with a community, discover and express my thoughts, and then the last two were vent and troll. So an interesting uh, little breakdown of why people say they comment at least. So one of the remarks I actually made recently was that the interesting thing about this is a lot of comment sections, and it depends on where it is, you know, the type of site oftentimes will dictate the type of community that actually comments on there. But for a lot of sites out there on the web right now, it's actually quite the reverse, meaning to troll or vent is at the top. But again, that can depend on the specific site, that can depend on the type of community and the type of articles that are going to, you know, that are written on the site. A lot of times the type of commenters that you get on your site is a culmination of the type of brand that you portray to people. So again, that can vary quite a bit. But interesting to know some of the, you know, the specific reasoning behind why people say that they're commenting. So if commenters and people interacting in that way with your site is a big part of your brand or it's a big part of how you're trying to, you know, gain new followers or build your brand that way, that's important. It's uh, really interesting information to keep in mind. Uh, so, and one last part that kind of breaks, uh, breaks down some of those commenters as well, which is pretty interesting. Uh, tells why readers are most likely to comment. So readers are most likely to comment when they, and at the top of the list, 55%, know something about the subject that wasn't in the article. So I thought that was pretty interesting. From there, 41% is identify with the topic, 
35% was to have a personal uh, experience to add, and it just kind of goes down from there. But uh, again, interesting information to keep in mind if commenting is a big part of your platform and uh, really interesting stats to dive into. If you'd like to check that out, as always, I'm going to leave a link to those in the show notes, which today are going to be at rightlydesignedshow.com slash 36. So the main topic, the main thing I wanted to take some time to talk about today is Bob Ross and what he can teach us about building a personal brand. But before I do that, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. So how many emails do you currently have in your inbox? Is it 5, 10, 100, or even 1,000? Regardless of the number, keeping a clean inbox is pivotal, not only to ensuring nothing important gets missed, but it also ensures that each of your tasks are completed in a timely manner. As I was going through emails daily myself, I noticed that the simple process of organizing messages or sorting the higher priority communications from things like, you know, notifications was eating up a noticeable amount of time in and of itself. So I decided to give SaneBox a try. SaneBox, from the moment you connect it to your email service provider, automatically scans your emails and does a pretty remarkable job of distinguishing more important emails from the less important variety. So plus if you also plus if you have over a couple hundred thousand or if you have a couple thousand emails in your inbox or something crazy like that, SaneBox can automatically archive a bunch of them for you up to a certain date so you can fast forward your path to inbox zero. They also have a ton of time-saving features like Sane News for organizing all your newsletters and Sane Black Hole for instantly unsubscribing from any email sender. That comes in really handy. I've used that. I can't even count how many times at this point in time. But as a listener to the Rightly Designed show, SaneBox is going to give you a 15-day free trial so you can experiment with some of the features or just quickly clean up your inbox. If you decide SaneBox is the way to go, you're also going to get a $15 credit to use to the plan of your choosing. So to start a 15-day free trial and to get your $15 credit, go to SaneBox.com slash Rightly Designed. Again, that's SaneBox.com slash Rightly Designed. Have a question for the show? Feel free to visit rightlydesigned.com slash question or call 888-727-1496. Okay, so today's main topic is Bob Ross and what he can teach us about building a personal brand. So if you've never heard of Bob Ross before, he's a pretty prolific painter and really a personality. He had his own show called The Joy of Painting, which uh, was pretty popular in its time, and it actually remains extremely popular today. Actually, a little while back, uh, I actually looked at them recently. Uh, he, a lot of his, almost all of his episodes are actually available on YouTube, and they've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. You know, each of them do. So his show still continues to be popular to this day. So pretty amazing. And it was, of course, popular at the time. Uh, you know, when the show first came out, I actually watched it when I was a kid. It was really popular as well. So, um, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read, if you've never heard of, of Bob Ross, or even if you have some interesting little tidbits in here, I'm just going to read a short uh, section from Wikipedia, of course, since Wikipedia always seems to have a pretty comprehensive detail of most subjects. But I'm going to read a quick section from Wikipedia that gives you a little bit of a background 
as to what Bob Ross did, a little bit who he was, and what kind of piece from this what we can learn in terms of building a personal brand because there's there's a lot in here and as I mentioned his brand continues to be prominent to this day. So it says Bob Ross was an American painter, art instructor, and television host. He was widely known as the creator and the host of The Joy of Painting, an instructional television program that aired from eight to, uh, for 1983 to 1994 on PBS in the United States and also aired in Canada, Latin America, and Europe. With a soft voice and a permed afro, Ross went from being a television personality in the 1980s and 1990s to an internet celebrity popular with fans on YouTube and many other websites. While staying in Alaska, Ross was working as a part-time bartender when he discovered a TV show called The Magic of Oil Painting, hosted by German painter Bill Alexander. Ross studied with Alexander and afterwards discovered that he was able to learn he was able to earn more from selling his artwork than his position in the Air Force. Ross retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service, having the rank of Master Sergeant and becoming famous worldwide for creating and hosting the TV program The Joy of Painting. Before the the show launched, Ross tried to promote his painting technique but met with little interest. He also had to find ways to cut back on spending, so he decided to have his hair permed just to save money on haircuts. The perm hairstyle was not comfortable for Ross, but it became an iconic feature of his image and brand. So if you've ever seen a picture of Bob Ross or you're familiar with the show, you're definitely going to recommend or you're definitely going to remember the afro. That was a huge that's a huge part of his brand and it still is today if you actually take a look at his logo. Uh, like you can go on Amazon right now and you can buy a lot of his products that he created or a lot of the ones that, you know, use his brand. And sure enough, it's a picture of him with the Afro. If you ever happen to see any documentaries or any of the uh, interviews he did, you know, a long time ago, uh, he actually remarks on how much he did not like that Afro. But he ended up keeping it because it became so much a part, as this, this article mentioned, so much a part of his brand and what he was recognized for. He ended up keeping it. So that was that's pretty interesting in and of itself. But the show had its first run from January 11th, 1983 to May 17th, 1994. But reruns still continue to appear in many broadcast areas and countries, including the PBS-oriented network Create. During each half-hour segment, Ross would instruct viewers in oil, pa- uh, in oil painting using a quick study technique, uh, technique from the imagination that used a limited palette of paints and broke down the process into simple steps. Art critic Myra Score uh, compared him to Fred Rogers, host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, noting that Ross's soft voice and the low pace of his speech were similar. Ross later found success in building a $15 million business by creating his own line of art supplies and how-to books and also offering painting classes taught by instructors trained in the quote-unquote Bob Ross method. In a 1990 interview, uh, Ross mentioned that all his paintings were donated to PBS stations. His earnings came from sales of his 20 books and 100 videotapes as well as profits from some 150 Bob Ross-trained teachers and a line of art materials sold through a national supplier. Ross also talked about the donated paintings on his show, Towering Glacier, saying they would help the station out. So there's a lot that Bob Ross did uh, to, you know, to kind of build beyond the show itself. So I'll get into that a little bit you know, later. I'm going to finish up this article here, but just wanted to take a quick moment to pause and, and mention the fact that he not only 
built and established a brand, but he, he created so many different products and things and tools to help people learn how to paint that it was almost a big part of what made him so popular is that not only was it the show, you know, at the time, but all the things that he created that just kind of flooded the art world uh, in terms of, you know, you know, with his style, his techniques, but also his products. So Ross used the wet-on-wet oil painting technique in which the painter continues adding paint on top of still wet paint rather than waiting a lengthy, a lengthy amount of time to allow each layer of paint to dry. From the beginning, the program kept the selection of tools and colors simple so that viewers would not have to make large investments in expensive equipment. Ross frequently recommended odorless paint thinner, a.k.a. odorless mineral, uh, mineral spirits, for brush cleaning, combining the wet painting method with the use, uh, with the use of one or two-inch brushes, which actually, you know, doing some painting myself, I've took a number of different art classes, that is actually fairly uh, abnormal to use painting brushes that large. Uh, most, you know, painting techniques have you use little fan brushes and, you know, little, like, quarter-inch brushes, but he used full-on two-inch brushes, which was kind of unheard of for most painting techniques. He also used knives, which allowed, um, uh, painting knives, which allowed Ross to paint trees, clouds, mountains, and water in a matter of seconds. Each painting would start with a few simple strokes that appeared as nothing more than smudges of colors. As he added more and more strokes, the blotches would transform into intricate landscapes. So the big thing here, you know, in terms of his technique was he didn't necessarily invent wet on wet. He didn't invent something new. He kind of took it and made it his own. So it was really interesting the way that, you know, if you ever have watched his show, what is so amazing about it is that he breaks down something that otherwise you would think is extremely difficult and complicated. And he simplifies it to the point where and this is what he says over and over over again on the show is that he makes it simple so that anyone can do it. And that's a big part as to why. And again, this kind of goes with his personality and the way, you know, he's very soft spoken. He's a good teacher. But the way that he's able to break down something that nobody really would think that they could do, he broke it down so that people would learn, uh, people could easily learn and then do it. So early on in his show, he didn't actually have a whole lot of different products of his own. I mean, he just had regular canvases. He had the bigger brushes, but he, he didn't have like this, this line of brushes and all these different things. Those kind of came out later as he progressed with his show. Um, but even early on, he made it very, very simple. And he would show people, you know, this is the type of brush I have. And this is the type, as it mentions in this article, this is the type of paint thinner you should use. And it was always condensed down. It was very simple. It was a mainstream approach to something that otherwise you'd have to take a ton of classes to do or you'd have to go and get an art degree or something like that. So part of what the brand that Bob Ross was building without trying to build a brand, and before I even get to that, I wanted to make the quick point that Bob Ross never set out to create a brand. Similar to the intro quote you know, that I have on every episode of the Rightly Designed Show, no one who cares about originality will ever be original, right? In the same way, nobody who cares about branding or who sets out to, you know, create a brand, quote unquote, will ever create a powerful brand. I know that kind of sounds counterintuitive, but his goal wasn't to build a brand. His goal was to teach people how to paint. It was to solve a problem. And by doing that well and by finding a need or a want out in that market, 
as a result, he created a brand from that. And so it all kind of came together with his personality, the way that he taught, but he, he created a transformation. He showed people through his painting technique and through his show, you know, it's entertaining in, a, in and of itself, but he showed people that they could do it. And then he taught them how and gave them the tools to be able to do that. So one of the other things that he would regularly do on his different episodes is while he was painting, he would show examples of other people who were doing paintings who had never painted before. So, you know, he would be painting and they would show, you know, all these different beautiful landscapes that different people were doing. They, they would send in pictures of. So he would always, you know, he'd get in tons of mail, fan mail photographs of people who had, you know, of the paintings they had created just watching his show. And some of them actually were pretty impressive. And these are people who had never painted before. So he had built into his show. That would be what a lot of marketers nowadays would consider case studies. But again, this wasn't him marketing. This wasn't him trying to, you know, quote unquote, build a brand. This wasn't him, quote unquote, trying to sell something. It was just him liking painting and effectively teaching people how to do it. So that's one way that Bob Ross started to build a brand without building a brand. Now, one of the other things that made Bob Ross or makes him so prolific, the reason why, you know, even today his brand is so prominent um, is because he, he, he became synonymous with what he does. This should be the end goal of any brand, any platform that you're trying to build. You want to become synonymous with what you do. For most people, if you say the word, if you say Bob Ross and you ask someone, you know, randomly on the street, okay, Bob Ross, what comes to mind? Just about everybody who's ever heard of him is going to say painting. So that's the type of recognition that really anybody would want. That means that if branding is your end goal, you've done something right. So again, the thing with Bob Ross was not necessarily that he was trying to build a brand. It was just an end result of him doing something well in a, you know, in a market or in an area that had a desire or a need for what he was doing. So that was a big, that's a big, huge part of what Bob Ross, what made Bob Ross so successful was the fact that he became synonymous with what he was doing. And even everything from the Afro to his personality, he, he created, he created a, you know, even a mindset, right? I hate to use the word market, but he almost, he created, in and of itself, he created a market, a group of people who actually, you know, who never painted before, even thought they were interested in painting, but got them interested in doing that. So later on, as it mentions in the article, this enabled Bob Ross to then be able to start creating uh, products. Now, similarly to, you know, the, the fact that he quote unquote built a brand for himself, he never set out to create a product to sell. And I think this is what a lot of brands do wrong. And that is they create a product that they think people need. Or they create a product, you know, or they create something that they want someone to buy. The goal is to make a sale. With Bob Ross, you never, ever get the impression that his goal is to sell you something. Because it wasn't. He'd even say on his show, you know, his common phrase was, I think it was, happy little buck. You know, <laughs> we never, you know, we never do things for that happy little buck. We do it for, you know, painting. That was his, that was his phrase that he would use over and over again. So the goal was never to sell you something. And I think so many brands today uh, try to, you know, it, it even comes across disingenuous. And that's why even a lot of large brands today are doing something called de-branding because people, 
you know, distrust big corporate brands so much because we're constantly trying to be sold something. We're constantly trying to be told that, you know, buy this product because it will do this. Whereas Bob Ross did the exact opposite. He taught people how to paint and if he will actually mention his products in his show, but he will never say you have to buy this to do it right or this brush is required to do this this uh, technique. He was successful because people liked his painting technique and they wanted to be able to follow his painting technique. So he never even had to ask people or tell people to buy his product. People just went out and did it because they liked the way that he painted. So it wasn't so much that he was creating a product that he didn't have to push. He created an interest or a need. And then later on, these products just almost sold themselves. It was his brand that was being sold at that point, not individual products. So that's a huge point, something I'll probably be getting into you know, more specifically in later episodes. But great brands don't sell products. Great brands sell their brand. That's why you can go out on, you know, Amazon and you can buy, you know, tons of different brushes that are all part of the Bob Ross brand. And they're very well made, they're high quality, but a lot of people are going to buy those specifically because they want to do the painting technique that Bob Ross taught. And, you know, in order to do that, you know, the first thought that most people are going to have is that I need to have the Bob Ross brand. So there are also a number of different, you know, products that he actually invented himself one specifically was something called black gesso which is pretty widely used in the art world and it just makes it really easy for people to do to paint black canvases and things like that so there were a lot of things that he didn't necessarily invent and then there were some things that he did but the point is that he was able to you know these products became successful not because he yelled or you know did what a lot of big brands do today and tried to you know persuade people to buy it he simply did what he did and people, you know, liked his painting technique and the products just kind of followed, you know, in the natural order of things and just met that need that he created. So one last point that I wanted to make, which I, f I, I noticed, you know, a little while back, uh, which is pretty interesting regarding Bob Ross, again, showing how he was, he was marketing without marketing. He was doing it without trying. He was just doing a good job at what he did. And so naturally, you know, what a lot of, you know, marketers and branders try to do, you know, through long formulas or, you know, things like that. He just did naturally. And what Bob Ross had was a list. So if you're at all, you know, familiar with all the different, you know, marketing circles these days, just, just about every blogger or marketer will tell you, you have to build a list. It's so important. You have to build an email list. And it is important. It is important to build an email list and to keep that maintained and to continue to add to that over time. Bob Ross did that naturally. So what he would do, and this was before, you know, really there was email. I think email existed, but it was like, you know, 1% of the population used it. But he built, he actually had a newsletter that went out. I think it was monthly. So he had a monthly newsletter that went out. And he would regularly do these instructional classes throughout the country. And so he would say on his, you know, on his different show, he would say, you know, write in, you know, a postcard or write into this address will add you to our mailing list and we'll let you know, you know, once we're in your area. It was always to, you know, offer, you know, his different instructional classes or things like that. But he was building a list. It was something that he did to continue to grow the amount of people that he could reach and that he could help and that, you know, in terms of teaching painting. So all of these things that he did, you know, instinctively, 
things that again way before you know today's drive for everybody to build an email list he was doing all of those things and what we see today is you know the reason why he had such a powerful brand was because he was doing all these things but the big takeaway or a lot of one of the things i like to come back to and focus on is the reason he built such a powerful brand was because he was not trying to build a powerful brand. And I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways a lot of people can keep in mind as they're trying to build a brand because a brand is incredibly important. It's something that, you know, communicates the heart and the soul, the message that you're, you know, you're trying to reach people with or, you know, the services that you offer, the products you offer. But what it underscores is that even all the way, you know, back to the 80s when Bob Ross was popular, he was popular not because he tried to build what a lot of people, you know, a lot of brands tried to build today, which is a facade, you know, something that will, you know, get someone to buy a product or fool people into thinking they're this way. He just did a good job at what he did. And he, you know, as a result, over time, that grew into a, you know, into a prominent, powerful brand. So hopefully you found that useful. I think if nothing else, it's educational and interesting just to know a little bit of how, you know, Bob Ross's history. And again, you can always check out his videos on YouTube. There's a ton of them. Um, so if nothing else, it's just interesting to see how just by, you know, creating a, you know, almost a movement or creating a new spin off of an old way of doing things, he was able to create a pretty, you know, powerful brand and business. And, you know, was pretty successful at doing that. So really interesting information there. And as always, if you would like to check out the show notes for today's episode, if you'd like to check out some of the previous articles that I had mentioned, you can do that by visiting rightlydesignedshow.com slash 36. Also, if you're enjoying the Rightly Designed Show, I'd really appreciate it if you take a quick moment to jump over on iTunes and leave us a review. I'd really appreciate that. Helps the Rightly Designed show go out to, you know, more and more listeners and we can continue to help everyone build a more powerful and influential brand through design, development, marketing, and WordPress. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to the program today and we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesign.com show for links to these channels and more.